with a bow, unless I'm making two or more bows at the same time, you're doing one step every day that's different. And in those steps, I have a tendency to swip swap lots of things, numbers and steps. And then I go, oh no. So that's usually what is, I did it. Oh no. <laughs> hey heroes, it's Darian, your favorite hero and resident string player. Um, and this is Hero Talk, where we talk about real life and real women in music. Okay, let's get started. Hey heroes, today with us is Amelise Arroyo from Arroyo Bows. She's a fantastic bow maker here in the northern area of Florida. Uh, she has been maintaining all of our bows pretty much and is making many of her own, is doing very, very well. And we were lucky enough to have her at the Hero Conference and now she's here with us today on Hero Talk. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm so excited to finally have you on here. We haven't had a bow maker before. Um, which is uh, a very nuanced and specific area of work from what I've gathered. Yes, it is very <laughs> different and very specific from by the violin making world. Yeah. Um, which is what most people know about. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember like learning about as a violinist growing up about, you know, Amadi and Stradivarius and Guarneri, but no one ever talks about the bow people. Do you, what do you have to say about the bow people that kind of are hidden in history? <laughs> well, most people knew or know who uh, Francois Tourte is. Mm -hmm. So a Tourte bow is like the be all end all. And then the other one would be Sartori, Eugene Sartori. And the bows that I make right now are in his style. So mm -hmm. both of them are French makers, and they are still to this day treasured and loved. There's a few others as well, but those are the names that get passed around the most. We'll probably get into this more later, but I, I'm also curious, why do you think people overlook bow makers more than violin makers? It's such a very specific art, it seems like, that y'all just get, I feel like, overshadowed. <laughs> well, I think it's because when people think of playing an instrument like a violin or a cello, they think of the instrument itself. Even though the bow is the reason the sound comes out, it's all really in the instrument. So the first thing you notice is the violin uh, when somebody's playing it, not mm -hmm. the bow. They're not going to be like, oh, look at that bow. They're usually like, wow, that violin's gorgeous. Or, oh my gosh, a violin's so old, you know, whatever, yeah. that kind of thing. But they forget that it's not going to sound good if you don't have a good bow. <laughs> yes. And a lot of times in teachers, you when you're first teaching somebody, you're trying to find an, a really good instrument. Because if the instrument's really bad, then a good bow isn't really going to fix that kind of problem. Mm -hmm. So you start with a good instrument and then you can start adding a bow to it. So it usually is a little while before a player gets introduced to, ooh, these are nice bows and yeah. this is how they play so much better. <laughs> um, well, before we get more into that, can you give us a little background about your journey in music and where you started? Sure. 
Um, I was born and raised in a Puerto Rican family that music is a huge deal. There was always music playing, there was dancing. It's just music was a part of everything that we did. Um, my brother uh, played the violin before me. One of my parents' things that they were like, oh, our kids are gonna play violin. And when I was about four, I started to beg to play the violin because I wanted to be like my older brother. And I thought it was the prettiest thing I'd ever heard. So I was about six when I got my first violin and I've been playing ever since. And then in middle school, I was homeschooled and had gotten my full-size violin from the local shop and was curious about how they fixed things. So I went into the back and asked the man who owned the shop if I could watch what they did to my violin. And so every time after that, I would go in the back and watch them work on my instrument. Well, after a few visits of doing that, he said, you're very curious. Would you like to come apprentice? <laughs> and I said, oh my gosh, yes. So in middle school, I started apprenticing, learning how to like, you know, clean a violin or change the strings or, you know, lubricate pegs, simple things on instruments. And I worked at that shop for about 15 years. And it was in those years that they ended up needing somebody to do rehairs. And so they sent me off, I think it was like 2011 to learn how to rehair. And I was like, ah, oh, this is interesting, very different from, you know, making a violin bridge or setting up a cello. And I liked it because it was more compact. It wasn't four different instruments and styles and measurements. It was kind of more one style of thing. So my method is always like, well, I want to learn how to do something better. So how can I do something better? So I thought, well, if I'm going to rehair bows, I should learn how to repair them. So I went and took a repair class. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was like, well, to get even better at restoration and repair, I should learn how to make bows. So I did one class in 2013 and fell in love with bow making. And after that, I was like, this is what I want to do. I don't want to make violins. I don't want to work on violins or other instruments. So it's like <laughs> bows. Bows is my life. <laughs> Oh, you did. And you I've did learned. adjust my sound post that one time. So you're not not working on. It. <laughs> <laughs> Only when uh, I, I'm absolutely needed, but most of the time it's me and Bose. <laughs> nice. I I really like that, and it's really unique how you had such curiosity for, like how it worked, how you could take things apart and figure out how to upkeep things. Literally, as a middle schooler, I. I didn't care when I was in middle school playing the violin. <laughs> I was just kind of like, I don't know how they're doing it, but I don't care. I just totally ignorant and went, went way over my head. <laughs> well, for me, I grew up with a father who's an engineer. Mm -hmm. So as, as a little girl, he was always like, you're going to learn to do this and you're going to work with me. So I, I worked on cars. I worked on tractors. I worked on computers and TVs and anything around the house, plumbing, you know, oh, just wow. stuff that was like, oh, how does that work? So every time something was going on, my my curiosity would be like, how does that work? So eventually, I think with my dad's training and, and encouragement for me to have a curious mind, that's kind of where it went. And I've always been a kid who loved to create with my hands. So it kind of naturally ended up coming out in middle school. That's so, so. cool. I love that. And how was that transition from more performance-based in your career? Because you you studied music in college, I remember. 
And then switching more to focusing on your business as a bow maker and bow repairman. Um, What was, how was that transition? Well, I was doing my bachelor's in music education and discovered in my internship that I really didn't like teaching in the public schools. I kind of chose that degree because I wanted to learn how to teach better. And I love music and music theory in particular. So I wanted to get all of the best training I could. And then once I was put in a school system, I was like, yeah, this is really not my thing. And so I decided that I was like, well, let me get a master's because with a master's, I'll have more opportunities to see what else is out there. But for my master's, I applied for a performance degree. And I've never been a performer, but I love playing. So I went, you know, I can do this. So I got in and finished my first semester, loved it, started my second semester and made it about two weeks in before I was like, I hate my life. I don't know that this is what I want to do. And I had, this would have been the fall of 2013 or 2012. And I really, realized that I just didn't like need a degree. I didn't need that for what I wanted to do. And so I made the decision then to focus my life on in my career on bows. I wanted to give it a shot. So I had to withdraw in the middle of my second semester after a few weeks of going, yeah, this isn't me. And at first I thought I was going to regret it and that everybody's going to be really disappointed in me for not finishing. But my professors were super supportive and they're like, if this is your dream, go for it. And honestly, I haven't regretted it since. It's been the best thing I've ever done. And, you know, it's just music and the instrument making world really do collide when you're a player who actually ends up learning how to make. Mm -hmm. Um, it's, It's not really so separate. And it's fun to have been in both and still be in both. But it, I guess it was just, you know, I, I realized teaching wasn't my path. New performing was never going to be my path. I privately taught and I did that for a while. Still have a few students, but making something about starting with nothing and then going to something that ends up making sound is what tickles my fancy. Mm-hmm. And. I honestly want to commend you for like that conviction and being able to be like, this just isn't for me. I feel like a lot of people, once they start, they're just like, well, I'm already in it. You know, I'm just going to keep going. I mean, that takes a lot of confidence to be able to do that. And I think a lot of people could use that, your story, you know, to validate their own feelings in school because music school is hard. And there's a lot of pressure, I feel like, in the classical music world to be like, get your master's. Like almost everyone does it. It seems like once you get your bachelor's, or at least that's how I feel. And there's like this pressure to like study music in school. <laughs> and I, and you don't necessarily, I, at least I think you don't necessarily need to do that to find your path, you know, and make a living as a musician. But again, it's coming from someone who's still in school getting their doctorate. So. <laughs> uh, but I know everyone's path looks really different. And that, that must've been a really hard moment in your life to just, you know, go left or go right. Like, which way am I going to go? You know? So Congrats it, on being able to do that. It was very hard. <laughs> well, thank you. It was definitely a hard decision because it was being able to feel like I could perform and actually get a degree was very validating. But then I realized, do I really need it though? Mm-hmm. That was that was my point of 
no, I don't actually need it because in bow making, there's no school. You have to do an apprenticeship and you have to take courses or go overseas and study. So there was no reason for a degree that I wasn't going to use. That, that takes me to a couple questions. Sorry, but that takes me to a couple of questions, though, is I know that bow making, instrument making is very much apprenticeship based. Do you think if it was, be, if it was more standardized and maybe like in a school curriculum, you would have taken that path? If it had been available as a school, I would have definitely tried to get into a bow making school. And a few people encouraged me to go into violin making, but that I don't have the patience for that <laughs> or the interest. It takes a very, I mean, it's three to four months once you get really good to make a, an instrument. And there's so many steps, all sorts of details, and it's extremely competitive. And so there's plenty of schools for that in Europe and in the US. Mm -hmm. And you know, there's the opportunity. If I had been interested in violin making, I would have done that. But for bow making, since it's not available, then I couldn't. But if that was a thing, then I think it would succeed. There was a time when a school was started, but it didn't last very long. So I know that right now, a lot of the bow makers that are my teacher's age are trying to make sure that classes are available so that this art form doesn't fail. Yeah. Do you think more musicians and string players specifically should know more about bow repair and making bows or maybe even instruments as well? Because I, a lot of us are very oblivious to this world. We just hand our instruments over to you with trust. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Everybody should know a lot more about bow, how the, mechanics of a bow work, the bow repair, bow, bow re maintenance, um, violin instrument maintenance, and knowing who your repair person is, or knowing the reputation, I should say, and seeing their work and being able to know that you, when you take your instrument somewhere, it's going to be well taken care of. That's extremely important. A lot of teachers, um, I've noticed over the years, can get really focused on the performance in a lesson. So they're worried about how well the student plays, their technique and all those things. And the upkeep on an instrument or the upkeep on a bow rehairs or paying attention to whether your bow is in good condition or whether it's a good enough bow or if like the string height on your instrument's okay, checking your sound post and bridge on a regular basis. Those things often get overlooked and those few things can make or break a situation in playing or performing because those nuances like the string height can really make playing up high on an instrument really easy or really difficult. A bow that hasn't been rehaired properly or a bow that hasn't been rehaired since it was bought will often just lose its sound. And so when it comes to being a player, knowing how your stuff works and knowing what is optimum is really important. It's just something that's often overlooked. So maybe we should have classes about these things in school. <laughs> <laughs> you should. And honestly, um, that's one of the things that um, the local shop here and I, the two of us have been working on. Uh, we're going to be trying to go to Jacksonville University, the University of Florida, and hopefully to Florida State to give uh, classes or like small little lecture essentially on the maintenance and basics of 
upkeep on your stuff. I would love that. I mean, Gainesville is so lucky. You, they have like two actual like people for bow repairs and like violin and upkeep. Everyone from Tallahassee to FSU always has to travel to y'all. And we're like, you should come here. <laughs> <laughs> we're working on it. We really are. We, uh, I think we've gotten some emails out. So we're waiting for some responses. But if we can work it out and make a day, then, you know, we can come up there and you guys can come drop your stuff off for a day and we'll get it done. <laughs> I, I can say with the utmost confidence that you'd have like a pile of bows to rehearse. <laughs> Whenever anyone imagine. finds out I'm like driving to you with a bow here, they're like, can you take my bow too? <laughs> because it's, well, you know, you it's know. a drive and everyone is, you know, it's a bit of a hassle. So you would easily have a lot of people dropping bows off at your door, at your feet, being like, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, good. Yes. And you have fantastic bow rehairs, might, might, I, might I add. <laughs> So, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, my bow has been doing very well. It's just now starting to like lose hairs as I'm playing. I'm like, oh, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> a, sad, a sad thing when the hair is like, nope, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, I know it's time. But on another note, back to what we're talking about. <laughs> um, so vi- instrument making and is very niche. And then bow making, from what I've gathered, is even more niche of a, of a field. And... Yes. From speaking with uh, other female luthiers and such, it's a very male-dominated field. Do you feel that amplified as even more so in the bow-making field? Um, well, since I have not really been so much in the violin-making world, and it's very different, um, then I'm not sure I'm one that can compare. I know there are makers who have kind of been in both, mm-hmm. and since I'm one of the younger ones, I have had less exposure to, you know, put like huge groups of people together from both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, but in traditionally, and yes, it's still a male dominated um, area, but like this year I got to go for the, for the first time to the Oberlin Bow Makers Workshop in Oberlin, Ohio at Oberlin University. Congrats. And <laughs> thank you. That's an invite only and you have to be accepted. And my teacher has been encouraging me and working on getting me to go. So finally made it. And there were three, four, four ladies out of 17. And um, honestly, I, I guess I hadn't really notice I guess so much in a way about the male dominant I mean it's obviously we're outnumbered yeah but in general I think because I just have so much fun with what I'm doing I don't always focus on those kinds of aspects Mm -hmm. and in the bow world it's I feel like it's less competitive so they're more welcoming um I joke and kind of say that bow makers are a lot like the trombone section in an orchestra. (laughs) (laughs) So if you know the trombones, they're a lot of fun. (laughs) You know, we do pranks and that kind of thing and have fun and whatever it is. We're still making, but that's, that's kind of the vibe. You put a bunch of trombone players together, you put a bunch of bow makers together and it's just an absolute blast. So the the more Um, chill area. (laughs) Yes. Whereas the violin world, because it's, or the violin making world is is so much more competitive. It's so much more traditional that it can be a little more on the stuffy side and 
very rooted in a male dominated world. So I know a few makers who have made it, but it has, you know, it's one of those things where they've had to fight really hard for the prominence and the recognition and just making it as far as they have. So um, that's something that I guess between the two sides, mm -hmm. bow making just doesn't seem to quite have the same like gatekeeping. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. So I think they're more open to like, oh, you're a female bow maker. Didn't notice. You're a bow maker. <laughs> Hang out with us. And that's, our, <laughs> that's really good to know, honestly. And so it seems like there's less like secret in like, oh, you have to be an apprentice with this person. Yeah. You, you know, I feel like there's this like sense of mysticism around making instruments sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> there is. There's just a little bit. <laughs> oh, um, my, one of my other questions might be kind of silly, but I've been having conversations with friends and of such about how some instruments are, um, have been catered to more of like the male body, like, you know, spacing on piano or like the thickness of a violin, like neck. Are there things like that that can be compared to on like a bow? Are there certain things that can make it easier for maybe for like a woman's hand? Yeah, actually. Um, so one of the things that I have discovered for myself that I like is a more petite stick. So essentially at the end of the stick where the frog is, you have a thickness measurement traditionally on a violin of about eight and a half millimeters wide mm -hmm. and about eight and a half millimeters tall. So that's your pretty much standard all around. You can be a little bit bigger than that and you can be a little bit smaller. Well, I have found that I like the smaller, which we're getting, I mean, the smaller ends up being about a half a millimeter at the most, <laughs> which you would think you'd never feel, but you actually do. Oh, I could totally um, believe it. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the other side is the frog. So a lot of times the frog can be styled very differently. So it can be more straight and thicker towards the center where your thumb is on the thumb projection. It can be more tall and angled or sharp corners. Um, so a, a smaller frog I have found with a smaller thumb projection fits my hand better. And I feel like sometimes when I pick up a bow that's very angular or that really slightly bigger um, end of the stick, which some of them are to compensate for um, a lighter wood, then it just feels chunky in my hand. So you don't like the heavy bows? And <laughs> it's not necessarily about heavy. It's actually just the fact that it feels big in my hands. Mm, okay. Whereas some people, they'll pick up my personal bow and they're like, uh, I feel like I'm going to drop it because it's so petite. And they like something that is more in the eight and a half millimeter range because they can really feel it in their hands and it doesn't feel like it's going to fall. So essentially if a, if, um, a player, a woman player likes something smaller, then as a bow maker, we can adjust that, adjust the frog, adjust mm -hmm. the stick, um, you know, picking a stick out if we're making it for someone that would work for making things just slightly more on the petite side. But otherwise, a bow is pretty much just standard. And the standard for a bow, I think, has really come out of just the style of playing. So the thicknesses and the weight of the bow has been the best 
for playing each instrument, violin, viola, cello. Mm -hmm. So if you take away or add too much weight or change too much, then you're actually going to lose out in playability. So I think, you know, I don't know. I wasn't there when the first modern bow was made. I wasn't <laughs> in that workshop, but I know that because the music was more demanding and it was becoming more technical and they're playing higher that when the modern bow was made, it was made for the ability to do those things mm -hmm. rather than just, you know, playing at the time more of Baroque style stuff. So they just needed a bow that would do all of these things. Yeah. And that size just kind of stuck. Mm -hmm. Have you ever made a Baroque bow? I have not. <laughs> <laughs> I want I want to, though. I think they're some of the prettiest things. I have to get my hands on some snake wood, and then I want to make some bows. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I would like to see that. I think broke bows are very pretty, too. Um, but also, you mentioned, diff like, you said snake wood. Um, I know that some people have uh, strong opinions about Pernambuco wood, which is, like, the predominant wood choice for bows, correct? Yes. Um, yep. What's your opinion on that, since it's kind of considered... Um, it's endangered or something like that, correct? Well, it's actually not endangered. Um, it is on the the CITES 2 list, I think, Appendix, Appendix 2. Mm -hmm. I'm really bad with this part. But essentially, the Pernambuco tree is the national tree of Brazil, and it's been being cut down for several hundred years. Mm -hmm. And so the deforestation means that the the trees are basically being cut down and they're not growing back fast enough. It takes about 30 years for a Pernambuco tree to mature and be considered decent enough wood to cut and make into a bow. Well, in 30 years, I'll be at the end of my career. And so it's kind of like, all right, well, I can't wait 30 years to get a tree. Um, there have been initiatives to get trees planted and whatnot. So the tree is, is essentially, it's a special tree that has to be carefully monitored. And whether it's U US, Europe, and Brazil essentially need to work together to be able to legally cut, because what's been happening is there's been lots of illegal cutting of the trees mm -hmm. and selling. And essentially it's getting into the States and bows have been made out of it. It's been sent to people and then now that people have these things, if we've been finding out, oh my gosh, this stuff's illegal because it wasn't actually done properly with the proper paperwork. And, you know, that's a lot of times that's because people are desperate to get money because they know they mm -hmm. can make money off of cutting down the trees. But if we work together, which is one of the things that's in progress, um, then I think eventually what should happen is there'll be a process that will allow bow makers, the prominent bow makers to go and pick a tree or two that are plants have been planted in a certain age and cut down and then cut and sold properly, legally for bow makers specifically and only to use. Mm -hmm. um, but I know that they cut it down for other things because it makes an amazing dye. It's turned into other stuff, but yeah, it's not just um, bows. <laughs> It's not, but that is the prominent thing that it is made out of. And it is the best wood. So if you get a Pernambuco bow, you, you're going to know it's better than all the rest. I have and so, one. <laughs> <laughs> good. So if you're a player and you're looking for a Pernambuco bow and you want to be conscious of 
the tree, then it's knowing where the bow came from and whether it was made like in the States by a maker or if it's a bow that came out of Brazil and knowing if the shop is caring and paying attention to the legalities of the bows that have come in from Brazil Mm -hmm. and or the Chinese bows that they also can get their hands on Pernambuco, whether it's legally imported or not. And so uh, um, while there is a lot, like I have a stash of wood that I bought from my teacher and he imported that in the eighties. So, or bought it from somebody who imported it in the eighties and that was all legally done. And so it's been sitting, you know, for as long as I've been around. And so I have a stash I can make from, but eventually that stash will run out. So it's kind of for the next generation of bow makers, we're going, okay, what will we do? And we need to pay attention and not just waste by making every bow out of Pernambuco, Mm -hmm. but finding other ways to make parts or make bows or make sticks out of different materials. And snake wood can be used for modern bows, but traditionally it's, it's a little too hard and not flexible enough. So it's more of a Baroque bow thing. So why is Pernambuco so perfect for bows? So Pernambuco has this really unique, I don't know, just perfect makeup of wood. It's hard, very hard. It's dense for, or it can be very dense. It could also be not so dense. Um, And it's very flexible. So when you're picking out a stick, essentially, if you take a board and you put it in a water bath and it floats, the density is not very high. So you would want it to sink and you'd be like, oh, this is a nice dense stick. Well, you can still pick it up and it doesn't weigh very much. It's like, wow, this is this is dense wood, but it's not like picking up, I feel like a board of maple and you're like, woohoo, that's heavy. Yeah. Um, and then once you cut it down into a stick, even before you've bent it to make it have that shape, you can take it and you can bounce it off your palm and you can feel the vibrations resonating through the wood. So it's a wood that allows sound to travel from end to end really easily. And so it amplifies the sound of the instrument because the whole thing is vibrating. And then because it has so much elasticity, you can bend the bow, most bows, fairly easily without fear of snapping them in half. Whereas if you were to take a lot of other woods, they cannot be bent and then have the flexibility to pull up and down with the hair like Pernambuco does. Mm-hmm. It's just... There's just nothing like it yet, which is why they've come up with, you know, carbon fiber or fiberglass to really try to, you know, find something that's not that wood, but it doesn't have the travel vibration that Pernambuco does. So it's just, it's a really unique wood. And then it's fun because it, with the fact that it dyes clothing while you're making it, your fingers turn purple, your (laughs) snot turns purple, (laughs) you know. I didn't know that. (laughs) <laughs> yes, it's fun. So we actually will save our shavings and we um most of the time we give them away to local um weavers that like or seamstresses that will dye their own clothing oh. or dye stuff to sell. That's so so nice. that's something, you know, we basically try to use every bit. We don't throw anything away. Um, but it is it's just a very unique wood that really nothing else has been able to compare to as of yet. Maybe mm-hmm. there's a secret tree out there somewhere in a forest that we could find. So um, 
what are your thoughts on like carbon fiber bows then? Because I know I have one as well. I have friends who have them and I actually don't mind my carbon fiber, but you alluded to that Pernambuco is still like the better version. Well, so what are your thoughts on carbon fiber? Carbon fiber in Florida has a wonderful use because outdoor gigs, goodness, with a yeah. wood bow, you can, it's it's atrocious because your your the wood itself is expanding and contracting with the weather, yeah. and a carbon fiber won't do that, which mm-hmm. is really nice because it just stays, and you don't have to worry about it doing weird things like warping and stuff like that, at least usually. Um, so they're, I, I think they're great because you can use them in all sorts of places. You can travel with them easily. Um, you can play really hard with them. So if you want to be epically cool, like Rachel Barton Pine and play metal music with violin, then <laughs> I feel like a carbon fiber bow would be epic for that because yeah. <laughs> it would just look way cool. Um but it has it has a lot of uses because you, in my opinion, you can just beat them really hard yeah. and they they just won't fail. I have my 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 first violin teacher shared a story with me when I was younger about how when carbon fiber bows were like just coming out, how she was like in school and her one of her friends like showed up with a carbon fiber. He's like, oh my gosh, look, and like threw it and like gave her a heart attack because <laughs> she didn't know why he was throwing his bow. And that, that, that reminds me of that story of how you can do literally anything with it and it survives. <laughs> I feel like you can. Yeah. So they're, they're useful for that. And so when you live in a climate like Florida, that goes from being super humid outside to very dry inside because the AC is always running, then that is very useful because it just, doesn't get bothered by any of that. And Mm -hmm. then playing outside in the humidity, it just don't care. So it will just play and play until the hair is dead. (laughs) Whereas with a wood bow, you try to do that and it will not be happy. (laughs) And um, I know that besides like Pernambuco being like an kind of not, you said it's not officially endangered, but you know, it's a, it's a um, value product that people are taking advantage of. Um, I also know that some people are, like especially older bows they have other illegal materials in them like ivory or someone once said something about like turtle shell I don't know enough about it but why do you think that these materials um have been incorporated in bows um like what's what was the value of adding them to bows and uh, is there any any value taken away by not using those items anymore well tortoise shell was used to make the frogs mm-hmm. and tortoiseshell is really pretty um it's when you hold it up to the light you can kind of see through it and it has this really gorgeous design which is one of the things that is illegal mm-hmm. ivory obviously is another thing that's super legal once again it's beautiful to look at because it's a white frog rather than a black frog mm-hmm. um ebony is actually becoming another one of those things that's where it's going to be difficult to use. Um, and that's traditionally what every frog is made out of is ebony. And then the shell, which is your inlay on the slide or on the eyes on the side of the frog or at the end of the button, that's traditionally been abalone. And abalone is another one of those that you cannot use mm-hmm. anymore, at least certain kinds of abalone. And so most of those things have just been decoration if you think back to the time when bows were being made everything was highly decorated Mm -hmm. so 
functionality, a tortoise frog over an ivory frog, as far as I know, isn't really going to make a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it looks really fancy. Yeah. So nowadays, if people make a frog that is out of those materials, it's because they've had that material or they've bought it and it's all legally sourced. Well, hopefully, um, and they are essentially trying to recreate a really traditional style that is super elegant and unique, mm-hmm. but those bows cannot leave the States. Yeah. So anything that has ivory on it or tortoise shell or the abalone that is um, illegal, you cannot go out of the States with it because when you try to come back in, it's going to be gone. They're going to take it. So unless you have like crazy paperwork and even then there have been cases of people losing instruments or bows to this kind of thing. So, I mean, for me, I don't see an advantage to using those materials besides it would look pretty. Mm -hmm. Um, I hear that both are like tortoiseshell and ivory are absolutely more difficult to work with. So for me, I'm like, I don't want more difficult. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's pretty, but I don't know if I want to give myself that much trouble. Yeah. Um, So for me, actually, I have more interest in making frogs out of resin Mm -hmm. and it's been, it's being done. Um, Somebody's with way more talent, skill and years ahead of me has made quite a few and it's inspiring because they're super cool. They can be all sorts of different colors. um, And it's, you know, something that isn't endangered or anything. And it, you know, essentially could walk out on stage and have like a blue frog. Be like, that's cool. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's, that's the nerdy part of me. That's like, Oh, let's do hot pink or let's do fun (laughs) colors, which, you know, it's like, Oh, that's not traditional, but it would be fun. (laughs) Yeah, it would be fun. Um, That was very cool. I didn't know that that wasn't resin was even a possibility. Um, That, if, if it's done right, it seems that the weight would be about the same. And they're, I mean, they're kind of hard to break. So I think it would end up working out really yeah. well. Um, and also, obviously, all these things that make up bows, you know, they're pricey. So what are, your, what are your opinion on the famous, like, one-third bow rule, like, has to be, like, in proportion, like, to how expensive your violin is and how to how expensive your bow is. What's your opinion on that rule? I'm not sure if I subscribe to it, but I hear it all the time, and I'm like, oh, I need a more expensive bow if I'm going to live by this rule. <laughs> <laughs> well, for one, um, yeah, that's pretty much impossible to do um, for the majority of people, um, especially if you have a really expensive violin. Yeah, it's hard to find a really, really expensive bow Mm -hmm. because modern makers, you know, I think you might be able to get up to maybe 10 grand with some makers, Mm -hmm. but most makers are between four and seven from what I understand for four and $7,000 for a bow. Whereas a violin, you know, once you get into a decent really good violin you're already into the like the fifty thousand dollars supposedly of trying to get a violin and there's just no way once you start getting really high in the violin world you're not going to find a bow that's that expensive yeah unless it's you know a tort or a sartori and those can go for 50 grand or over 100 grand Mm -hmm. but those are pretty much already owned and there's only so few of them for the world to purchase Mm -hmm. So essentially that rule cannot apply once you get into the professional world, because 
Like if you were to buy a bow from me, I charge $3,000. If you were to buy a bow from a different maker, it would be maybe Mm $7,000. And the difference would be the maker, really. You know, you could find, and it's not that my bows are lesser. It's just, you know, sure, for one, I'm younger, so I'm still learning a lot. So I'm not a 30 plus year experienced maker, but, um, you know, it could be that the bow that I made fit the instrument way better mm-hmm. and purchasing somebody else's bow just because it costs more isn't going to necessarily be the right answer for for your setup yeah. of your instrument. So a lot of times what I say is that you have to look, if you're, you know, in, in university, then you really shouldn't be looking at bows that are like less than $500 just because they're, they're not going to play to the level that a college student needs. And Mm -hmm. once you get into the professional world, you're going to find that your bow won't do anything Mm -hmm. at that, that low of a grade of bow. Um, So usually, you know, I say start with a thousand dollars and you can find so many bows between a grand and three grand And it's an investment, so you save up for it and you try a lot of bows and you might find you like a $1,000 bow over a $3,000 bow because it fits better. The the bounce point is where it needs to be or the balance of the bow is where it needs to be. And it could be that it's not that that's a cheaper bow, lesser bow. And yes, in certain ways, maybe because some of the materials aren't as expensive, it is. But at the same time, I find that it's about how you respond as a player with a bow mm-hmm. as long as the bow is uh, made you know it's it's well made and it's once again you're paying attention to the, where the materials came from and what shop it's made out of and that kind of made from mm-hmm. and that kind of thing but um a college student if they have a really nice instrument they're not going to be able to afford a really high-end bow most of the time that's just not in in your budget yeah so um, you know, speaking from somebody who tried to do that thing and ran over my own instrument and had to start from scratch. And, <laughs> <laughs> it was like Did one of those really? things where, uh, yes. How does that happen? <laughs> it was a joint effort between me and my dad, man. It was a, it was a very sad day. Um, I was, uh, my dad and I, we, we were in separate cars. I was in a hurry and didn't put my violin inside my car. Like I was supposed to, and I had forgotten to feed my horse. So I set it down outside the car and was running to go feed the horse. And my dad was in a hurry and, uh, didn't see that I had set the violin down on the ground. And he tried to squeeze between my car and my mom's car rather than going backwards Mm -hmm. because we had a carport. And um, I made it to the end of the sidewalk when I heard a crunch and I turned around and I started screaming at my dad, get off, get off, get off. And we opened it and it was in about 22 pieces. Oh my God. I think I would have, you were crying, right? I would have been bawling. (laughs) We were, we, um, we held hands and cried together all day long. What do you do with the pieces? Like I couldn't throw that away. I didn't. I was working at the violin shop, so I poorly put it back together. So it makes sound, oh. not pretty ones. <laughs> but it's, it usually hangs in my workshop as a reminder to um, visiting young kids to never do what I did. <laughs> oh, my gosh. 
I'm like, my heart rate is already higher just hearing that story. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, I had to start all over in college with finding a whole new instrument. And then after that, I had to find a bow. So, you know, trying to to suddenly spend thousands of dollars on, on instruments and bows was just daunting. And it took me a year to find an instrument. And I think it took me another year before I found a bow. And I had to save up for it. I think I got, I paid $1,500 for it. And, you know, I still have that bow. It's not what I like anymore, but it's still a good playing bow. So it's one of those things that I always say, you've got to take your time and you have to look at the materials, the craftsmanship, mm-hmm. the maker or the shop it came out of. And, and, and then look within a price range and save up to buy something. Yeah. You know, I know I would like to get a new bow someday. Mine's like, just barely a thousand dollars i've had it for a long time though and that also brings me to a question that i've often wondered is there a point where because bows go through so much they are they're you know they're doing a lot for you they're getting a lot of attention in your hands (laughs) um is there ever a point where they're gonna fail you like at what point do you need to get a new one well um that is a very good question most bows don't fail unless they break mm-hmm. or there is really poor maintenance, which has happened, um, or it's been taken to a shop where it wasn't repaired well, mm-hmm. and then it might be more of a consideration. So let's say you have a bow that's $500 um, and the head snaps off, which is you know a common, fairly common break. Well, it's at least $300 to do a a repair like that. And most of the time it's going to be way more than that, depending on the shop and where you live. Mm -hmm. So to glue the head back on, reinforce it, do a rehair and all that kind of thing. um, By the time you've invested back into that bow, you're already at the price of basically at the price of the bow you just bought. Mm -hmm. So at that point, do you invest in the bow that you have? Or do you invest in a new one? Well, the difference in that could be, uh, once again, the maker, where it came from, how old it is, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But most bows, if they're taken care of, will last a very, very long time. Mm -hmm. Because a regular rehair, regularly seeing your um, bow person will, you know, keeping the faceplate intact, where the hair is at the head, making sure that the hair is being put in properly in the frog and that things aren't um, being put in, basically glued in instead of actually pressed in the way they're supposed to be. All those things, if it's done poorly, can wear out a bow and Mm -hmm. cause things to break, but most breakages are repairable. Mm. So once again, um, like I think one of our professors had a bow break and it's a bow that can, it was nice. It can be repaired and keep playing. But once a head snaps off, the value of the bow is, is greatly decreased. Mm. It's like how getting a soundpost crack on the back of an instrument it basically kills it. Mm. So, well, but otherwise. Well, that's good to know. I, I actually witnessed a head snapping off of a bow once. I, I was, oh, it was, it wasn't mine. It was my stand partner. Actually, I was at a festival and she oh, no. she was like holding her bow like next to her as she was sitting and she dropped it so like maybe 
I, I'm like three, not three, like two feet off the ground. And that was all it took. And the head just snapped off and she started bawling. <laughs> and I felt so bad. She's like, I just bought this bow. <laughs> oh, no. Yes. it. I mean, that's the easiest thing is is for it to to for you to accidentally drop it and the head snaps off because it's the most, um, you know, the smallest part. It's the most fragile part of the bow and it's where the most tension is held. So essentially if it gets bumped just right and there's any kind of weakness in the grain, then it's just going to go boop. Mm -hmm. Bye. I've never (laughs) seen like the wood of a bow snap. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) I like, it's not pleasant. No, it's like, (laughs) It's, it's like the sensation of like nails on a chalkboard. Like it's so uncomfortable. <laughs> it feels, yeah. It's so wrong. It goes against everything that you know. And you're like, oh goodness, I'm so sorry. <laughs> uh, um, so so I two more questions to like to round out the end of this um, conversation is what tips do you have for people shopping for bows? Okay, so tips for shopping. A lot of times what I say is that you should course take your violin or your instrument with you I think violin because that's what I play mm-hmm. um, and you start with about three three to five bows within a price range and I would always go above the price range just so you can compare mm-hmm. what was in your price range to what is available outside of it um, and usually I say you can play on your instrument play whole bows on an open string, play a scale that's like three octaves so you can hear the how it sounds in the low end, how it sounds on the high end, play stuff that demands things like spiccato or anything that you're playing that is um, something that's more demanding and technical so you can see how the bow bounces or responds to changes. Mm-hmm. And then essentially you would play two bows like that side by side. And a lot of times you can pick it up and play a scale and go, no and set it back down and you set that one aside and then you eliminate it you bring it down to two and then you can add in three more and compare and eventually you a lot of times I say go get down to two and then take them out on loan and play them for a while because then you'll get to know each bow and as you play it you'll find out more things and you'll feel more stuff in your hand whether it's good or bad Um, And then a lot of times I always encourage people to play bows that are way outside of their price range, just because if there's the opportunity to play something that's really well made or something that is unique or old in, you know, a famous bow maker, then you'll learn a lot from playing it. You'll be able to feel and hear nuances that you wouldn't necessarily have an, an opportunity to hear or to play or to experience otherwise. And it's not to, you know, it's like going and watching a professional player. You listen and you're like, ah, oh, I aspire to be that. And then you listen to yourself play and you're like, oh my God, I've got to practice more. <laughs> so you, know, you can like you match. Want to go, yeah, but you still want to go watch them. You want to experience it. You want to basically get saturated and somebody else is playing because it's encouraging and it's inspiring and it's the whole wow factor. Well, it's the same thing with playing a high-end instrument or high-end bow. You will have that wow factor, but you will learn things about the way you play. You will learn things about the way the bows play. And then when you go to compare the quote unquote lesser bows, then you can really find out, oh, this bow 
is it still plays really well and it has those same nuances, maybe just not to the same level. Mm -hmm. And then you can also go, yeah, this bow doesn't play it like at all, or it's, it's horrible in this one way. So it's easier to go, you know, no, no. Cause that's the thing for me. I say that if once you find a bow, it'll fit in your hands, it'll feel like an extension of your hand. It shouldn't feel heavy. It shouldn't pull on your hand. It shouldn't cause any kind of pain. It should essentially feel like you're not having to work hard. And that once you play that the bow does all the work itself. If you don't walk away with a bow feeling that way when you've played, then you're going to fight it. Mm -hmm. You're going to be frustrated a lot because you're like, well, I just had to get a bow. So I just picked a bow. A lot of times that's going to end up biting you in the butt because you're fighting what you didn't really like about it, but it was all you could get. And sometimes we have to do that based on finances and I've been there, done that, but it's better. I always say it's better to take time. If you have a bow and it's working, take time, go visit shops, go visit makers and try and try and play. And, and that way you can really find what it is that you like and narrow it down to a style, a weight, a strength, a balance point. Um, you know, looks don't so much matter, but those things, then you can basically go to a shop and say, I want this kind of style. I want this kind of weight and I want this kind of balance point. And a lot of times they can pull that kind of uh, range out of their bows and say, Oh, this is, this is what you're looking for. Try these. Mm. So that's good advice. Um, and then lastly, our last question is what advice do you have for, uh, younger adults who are wanting to get into bow making or bow repair? Well, that's a, I feel like in a way that's a hard one, harder than (laughs) bow advice. (laughs) Um, since there's not a lot of opportunities to just experience it, if you can find a maker that's close by or a, let's see. Or you can, yeah, I guess it would be a maker. If you can find a maker to visit, you can sit with them and talk and see what goes into it. Or if you, I mean, sometimes you can always, I guess, do like a video chat or call them. Then one of the things is you got to know that once you step into that world, it's it's kind of an all or nothing. Mm-hmm. It's a very hard, hard <laughs> lifestyle i guess in terms of working i when i got to my workshop this year i hit burnout in the uh, end of the second week i went outside and just cried and cried because i was so frustrated Mm. and another maker she came out and sat with me and she's like what's going on it's like i made another mistake this is so hard i feel like i'm never gonna get it and i'm never gonna make it and she goes honey, we all feel like that. (laughs) (laughs) So it's one of those things that when you, if you want to do something like this, then the only way to really get into it is to do workshops, which they have in Ohio and they have them in New Hampshire. And I'm sure there's others I don't know of. Um, Those are the two that I know of right now. Um, so one is learningtradesecrets.com. They offer classes or courses. And then the other one is the Violin Craftsman Institute um, at UNH mm-hmm. in New Hampshire. So both of those, you can kind of get your feet wet by going and doing like a reher course. 
but a lot of times they require you to have some kind of experience beforehand or knowledge to be able to get in. So a lot of times you have to go to your local shop and sit and watch people rehair or, you know, do even do setup on instruments to see what's all involved. And if a shop will let you do that, I, I let people do that all. They can come and watch me and I'll talk about what all goes into it and the finances and the investment, the time. So, I mean, I want more young people to do it because I don't want to see this art form die. So I'm, it's like encouraging people, let's do it. You know, if you're interested, <laughs> go for it. Just know that it's, it's like music. It is a commitment mm -hmm. to practice, to working hard. It is not for the weary and <laughs> weak hearted as my teacher goes, well, if it was easy, everybody be doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's true because I go, man, it's so hard. It's so hard. I feel like I say that all the time. Mm -hmm. But the reward is great because you end up with a product that somebody's going to go home with and make music. And that part is something that's really, really fun to take a boring board, essentially. And by the end, it's something that vibrates strings and people perform with all over the world. Yeah, that is very true. It, it does seem like a difficult field to get into. So all the more props to you. <laughs> and <laughs> Thank you. As you're talking, I lied. I have one more question. I'm just so curious because I see your workshop behind you and everything, which is very cool. I've been in there. It's very fancy. And <laughs> at least to me, uh, what is your day-to-day -day as a bow maker? Like, what what does it look like for you? Oh, well, since I am still in the learning lots and lots phase, my day is usually getting up and rehairing a bow or two, depending on how many I have waiting. That's usually what I like to do first. Um, and then it's working on a bow. So working on a bow, depending on what part, like today I was working on a cello frog. So this will be my second cello bow. And um, it's basically taking one step at a time and trying to remember how to do it. And sometimes it's like the other day where I was making the pearl slide on the bottom of the frog. And I made three before I'd finally figured out why the first two went wrong. So I spent an hour doing the first one, it didn't fit. Spent an hour doing the second one, it didn't fit. And finally I figured out what was going on like halfway through the third one and was just able to get it fitted. And it's one of those things where you go, why didn't I just figure it out the first time? <laughs> and I feel like that's mostly what my day is. Oh, I've made a step. Oh, I've made a mistake. Okay, fix the mistake. <laughs> Next step, I made another mistake. <laughs> I mean, sounds a lot like so practicing. I, honestly, it really is. It really is. Um, and I've been told that you have to make essentially a thousand or do a thousand of one thing of a step before it really is integrated into the whole system of your memory, muscle memory, your mind. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the things that doing it every day. I, I can't do every step every day. It's like with a bow, unless I'm making two or more bows at the same time, you're doing one step every day. That's different. And in those steps, I have a tendency to swip swap lots of things, numbers and 
steps and then I go, oh no. So that's usually what is, I did it. Oh no. <laughs> but every day is really fun because I get to come into my workshop and my cats usually come in here and hang out with me and I get to play music or um, have quiet and just honestly just sit here and work with people's bows, which are always fun to see or make my own and keep going. I hope it's a bow. I hope it's a bow <laughs> by the time it's done. I know I re- when I brought my bow, I'm always scared when I take my bow to someone else because I had a roommate whose cat bit on the tip of my bow and I'm always so embarrassed by the fact that that happened. <laughs> oh, it happens all the time. I will say my kitties don't chew on the bows. Well, I don't even have a cat. No interest. <laughs> it was someone else's cat. I was so mad. <laughs> Well, I inherited a bow from my uh, husband's grandfather that he bought in his 20s. And he said, I'm going to play the violin. And uh, 60 years later, never played the violin. (laughs) And (laughs) he took it out of the violin and bow out of his closet one day and said, hey, will you look at this? And I was like, okay, the violins, you know, it's it's a cheap old German. It's Mm -hmm. nothing really to be excited about. But I looked at the bow and I was like, but this Oh, and it was all like the there was so much missing on it. It was really bad shape. But I was like, the stick was really pretty. I looked at the head and I was like, somebody's been chewing on this. <laughs> so you're not the only one. Mine came with bites. <laughs> I know. I'm still. Re- I still regret having to have lived lived with that cat because now there's permanent two little dent teeth marks on the tip. You don't see it until you look at it. And I've had bow over here is and I've had like two different bow people look at it and be like what happened to the tip and I'm like oh, I have to go over the story again it wasn't my fault <laughs> it's it's okay it happens at least you didn't run over your violin oh my gosh <laughs> that's like a horror story so it it is and I lived it <laughs> do you have nightmares about the sound of it crunching <laughs> I can still see it sticking out underneath my dad's <gasps> tire like just, that hole I mean it was just like 45 degrees out from under the tire. Oh, cringe. <laughs> it was awful. Oh. <laughs> well, now I know someone has run over an instrument. <laughs> Yay! See? <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> On that fun note, don't run over your instruments, anyone. Um, take care of your yeah. instruments and bows. Uh, well, thank you for taking the time to speak to me and to speak to our listeners on Hero Talk about bows and bow making, maintenance and shopping, all the things. We talked about a lot of different things. Um, but thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you for inviting me. This has been a lot of fun. I'm so glad. I'm really... That's the point. <laughs> <laughs> and this is really neat what you guys have been doing with um, Hero. I just, I keep trying to get the word out there and spread Aww, it. And... Thanks. So keep it going because this is super awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Um, I'm so excited. I mean, season three is just starting for Hero Talk. And we have, I just love talking to other women in music. Every time I leave an interview, I'm like, oh, they're so cool. I got to talk to them. They're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> and I love it. It's, uh, it like feeds the soul a little bit. Um, so I can't wait to see what you do next. And I will definitely link your website in our episode description so people can learn more about you and maybe visit you for for some repairs or bow shopping. So, and I know I'll be seeing you soon for my bow repair. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) Probably by the end of the month or something like that after I get through this couple auditions because school hasn't started yet for me. Well, when we're recording this, it hasn't started yet. So (laughs) you'll see my text come through. Be like, hi. (laughs) 
I'll be ready and waiting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much.